So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. Hey, this is Jack Morrissey with episode 27 of Team Jack, titled Reshoots. Reshoots! <laughs> Our working title was Additional Photography. <laughs> but since everyone in the press seems to have settled on the much shorter, sweeter, and simpler Reshoots, reshoots! even though it's inaccurate, oh. we'll lead with that. Um, on the episode this week, it's the core group. Matt Cohen. Can I be Hillary Swank? The core. Oh, geez. No, and I'll be Aaron Eckhart. There we go. There we go, gang. If you're going to be Hillary Swank in the core, can I be Stretch Armstrong? In what movie? Because that was a stretch. In what movie? That you just (laughs) made. In what movie? (laughs) Can I be Taylor Lautner in Stretch Armstrong? (laughs) Um, And Greg Yolen. Hi. Is with us here on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in Hollywood. Reshoots. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be my contribution to today's show. I'm in. I'm in full on uh, tropical minor bird <laughs> mode. Exactly. Um, before we get into all that stuff, what's what's everybody up to? Yolen saw a cabin in the woods, as did Cohen. Yep. Mm. yep. Morrissey has not. Morrissey is yawning. Cohen and Yolen are both eating um, metabolic life bars by Biotest, which is which are the official bars of Team Jack. That's true. Podcast uh, cooking and Ardbeg is the official scotch. Exactly. We sit here and we we eat protein bars and drink scotch. <laughs> it keeps us alive, <laughs> and more importantly, it keeps us funny. So, what can you? What do you feel? What do you guys feel like saying about Cabin in the Woods? That's not going to fuck it up for me who go hasn't see seen it. it. Just go see it. Yeah, that would be my. Don't watch a trailer. Don't talk to anyone about it. Don't read reviews. It. Don't Damn. talk. If people start talking about it, walk away. Honestly, it is one of those films that you just have to go see and enjoy. And enjoy it, you will. I don't care if you love horror. If you love horror, you'll love it. If you don't love horror, you'll probably still love it. It's not. Do you so, have a? Um, I should know the answer to this already, but because I'm a bad fan of yours, I don't. Do you have a uh, a system of measurement on the Spiel blog? Um, How many Spielies do you give it? I uh, I don't have an official one, but I do have the palm sweat meter, <laughs> and I would give this an extra moist 
Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> if you moisten my palms. <laughs> moisten? <laughs> if you moisten my palms, you've achieved. Um, you know, it lubricates the thumb going up, the moistened palms. Right, so this right. gets a thumb up and a very moist palm. Cohen? Yeah, same. I'm moist. You really loved it. I'm very moist. Uh, yeah, I did. It's catching I, on. I don't know how much. Uh, when I first walked out, I was like, I really, really enjoyed that. I don't know if I loved it, but then an hour later, I was debating on going back to see it again. So I loved it. Yeah. Wow. I and I had a, a similar experience. I was like, wow, that was pretty, pretty awesome. And then I woke up the next morning, and it was the first thing in my head. It's all I could think about for like a day after. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. Really? Yeah. Really, really fun, inventive. And animals. I and I am not a Whedon guy at all. So. Yeah, Another mine. Wow. So I, I dug it. You like it? That's awesome. I almost, I almost guarantee, I would be shocked, Jack. It's got one of my favorite scenes in movie history now. Shit. I've heard that from other people too. No spoiler, obviously no spoilers, but yeah, don't I do can it. think of several. Great, yeah, it, great it, it, it's pretty fucking amazing. Huh. Interesting. Well, Robert Abley wants to go see it, so I think I'm going to go see it with Robert Abley. It'll make my, it'll make my top five. Definitely, definitely. Huh. All right. Seen anything else, the two of yous? Um, 21 Jump Street saw that last I weekend. That. Uh-huh. Hysterically funny. Loved it. Loved it. Wow. Uh, shockingly loved it. Wow. Because it's a, it's, it's one of those movies that is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's meta, but that's sort of a bad word. You know, things can right. be meta and turn out to be incredibly pretentious because they want to congratulate themselves for the fact that they're outside of themselves and that they can poke fun at themselves. But this one uh, keeps its eye on its own ridiculousness at all times, and it just saves it time and time again. It right. just constantly makes a joke and makes a joke about the fact that it made that joke, right. and you uh, you go with it. It's really funny. Cohen? Agreed. Again, very, very, very moist. Matt and I, Matt and I are very moist. Moist. This is making for bad reality television. Uh, no, I, no I, conflict. I, I didn't come here to make friends. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I loved it as uh, unapologetically as that, but I definitely had a good time. Huh? I've been I've been doing well with movies, so I I think I'm uh, three in a row. I don't see a lot of movies, so it's Chronicle, Jump Street, uh, Cabin in the Woods. I liked all three. Which is rare for me and, to enjoy a film in theaters. Um, spoiler alert. Go ahead and spoil it for me. The Johnny Depp cameo in 21 Jump Street is what? And Peter DeLuise. I really um, forget. Yeah. They, <laughs> they show up as characters who have basically, it's, it's the characters who are themselves from 21 Jump Street, but this is them 20 years later and they're still deep undercover. And they show up. <laughs> so they've been in the, uh, supposedly, I've heard people say that Depp actually played that character throughout the film. I don't know if I believe that, but I believe it. they're both in the movie the entire time, him and Deloise. They're like two of the henchmen that never talk, and then they pull off their masks at the end to reveal that it's been them the entire time. Yeah. It's and they've been du- like double undercover. Yeah, yeah. But then we won't blow what happens after that because it is, it is actually awesome. hysterical. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Involving Johnny Depp? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is this the best work from Johnny Depp uh, in recent memory outside of the Tim Burton ooh, Dark Shadows trailer? Dark Shadows trailer, exactly. I don't know. It's Johnny. It's Johnny Depp uh, poking fun at himself again. You know what? I will make great. I will make one. This reminded me of a Cabin in the Woods thing, and this isn't a spoiler. I don't think mm, if it even know. might be mm. turn it off. But there is a cameo in the film. I don't think that's a spoiler, right? Uh, no, there is, a, there is a pretty high wattage cameo. And my, the, the theater I saw it with 
literally got up and applauded. Yeah, and mine too. Makes no sense to me. I I totally agree. I you sort of they sort of uh, foreshadow it a little bit. Totally. If you know what if, if you yeah, yes, if you know what yes. you're you're experiencing, you're like okay, I think that's what it is. And then this this cameo comes on, and I that my audience applauded. Went applauded. Nuts. Yeah, applauded. And and like a so four, four after a four a three thirty p.m. show on like a Friday. What? My audience yeah, applauded. Dude, you, gotta, you gotta go check it out. Just wow. because that person existed, like it, they were reminded that they know they're familiar with that person. And but it's also fucking, a perfect bit of casting. It is. It, it's great. Wow. Yeah. Not to build this movie up or anything. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's hilarious. It's great, and uh, and really go. You know, to anyone who's looking for a good time at the movies, this is the fucking definition. Yeah. Now on my radars, I have nothing till Avengers. I don't think. In terms yep. of stuff I'm going to see. Same. No, and what do we heard about the Avengers? Really? Uh, third act is amazing, I've heard. Yep. Uh-huh. I've heard the entire movie isn't bad, but the third act makes up for anything else in it. The they, third act is the battle in Manhattan. Yes. Yeah, right. I've heard Shay, every, everyone who is embargoed uh, post-premiere has more or less said the same thing, which is shaky, shaky, and then it wakes up uh, and, huh. and and it explodes and is great. Interesting. And there's nothing between now and then. That's soon, dude. It's our. It's, it's April fifteenth. Like that's yeah, right. that's two and a half weeks away. That's maybe. Yeah, that's pretty nutty. I will be. And how about the fact that I will Tom, be in Vancouver for Rachets. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mean to tell me the movie was so good they wanted to shoot more of it? It's true. We, you shouldn't call them reshoots. You should call them more shoots. Yeah, exactly. Are we sailing into these waters? No, not necessarily. I'm no. just trying to, you know. Well, speaking of sailing into waters, has anybody paid attention to um, Deadliest Catch? No. The oh. critical reception for Battleship, which has opened in many, many international territories in advance of its North American opening. I have indeed. And? Well, they're not good. <laughs> um, Battleship, Uniform- uniformly? Battleship was Yeah, there's not been one good review. Really? There have been mediocre bad are reviews they? that have said... It's like better than the last Transformers movie, uh-huh. but it's basically just the last Transformers movie. Okay. Um, and On the high to seas. me, if you're better than an F, uh, that's not, I'm not really, I'm not pumped. Right. Um, but that was shooting, I mean, that shot next to, uh, us in Twilight, Baton Rouge, Saga Breaking Dawn in Baton Twilight, Rouge. Saga Breaking Dawn part one and two. On stage, st- other uh, stages. At Celtic Studios in Baton Rouge. Uh, I mean, they were shooting that, you know. And then I think reshooting. Yeah, and uh, and I know that the effects work was extensive. It's a big, big movie. So right, um, but they're also doing an interesting thing: is that they're releasing it in European markets before bringing it to the United States. Which is a trick of a trick that the studio brass comes up with, basically to try and build up an impressive gross from the international markets before it comes into North America, so that when it comes in, it's already sort of a perceived as a business victory yeah uh the last time they or this tactic was tried most recently with tintin was it not yes yes that's true. which opened internationally before north america it opened uk before north america or did it open all over the world i think it opened in in several european markets yeah yeah. and do you think anybody in north america is aware of let alone gives two fucks how much money either tintin or battleship has made in various foreign territories before it actually opens at the multiplex down the street on Friday. Nobody cares. I'd say no, but I think that the Who difference are they pitching between this to Tintin the shareholders? and uh, 
between Tintin and Battleship is that uh, is that Tintin is like a, a you know a huge thing in Europe. It's like a much yeah. different franchise here. I don't think they ever built a you know a huge domestic return into their models. I think they were sort of like we're going to make the you know majority of our money in these overseas markets where Tintin is popular. Right. And Battleship is sort of, it seems like another Michael Bay, yay, rah, rah, here's the U.S. Navy movie. Right. So to open that in European markets before the United States seems a little bit, it's not quite as, um, you know, succinct, I guess. Right. I wonder, how many, I wonder how many people will sit through that entire film and, and think that Michael Bay directed it and like have that thought for the rest Plenty of their life. People. I'm sure most. Yeah. It looks exactly yeah. like a Michael Bay movie. Yeah. Except it's Peter fucking Berg, which makes me want to see it because I am in very curious what that dude did with that much fucking money. A lot of money. He seems batshit insane. Um, I am also under said impression. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm bored already with Battleship. Are you? I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I'm, bo- I was bored. Watching the trailers, I was sort of like, okay. Right. You know what's going to happen. Go ahead and open that Metabolic Life Bar yeah. on air, Cohen. Brought yeah. to you by Metabolic Life Bars and, and R.B. Scotch. Um, so let's tear into this reshoots thing and let me lead. You lead, Jack. All right. So Team Jack, in addition to existing as a podcast on smodcast.com, and up at iTunes Store also exists on Facebook with our official Team Jack page. Also exists on Twitter at Team underscore Jack, uh, where we have an audience of that's growing by the minute of uh, Twihard fandom who is extremely interested in any anything and everything pertaining to the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2, which is the final installment of the much-beloved by that fandom uh, Twilight Saga. And just yesterday, uh, the director of said picture, Mr. Bill Condon, who also uh, resides at this address... It's, Con- it's Condon? It's Condon, I've Greg. I've been saying Cromden this whole time. I no, feel like an anything, idiot. Anything is better than and condom. I is it condom? <laughs> can't tell you how many reservations I've had to make in which the person at the other end of the line is like, oh, Bill Condom? <laughs> like, C-O-N-D-O-N. N is Nancy. Okay, continue. Um, so Mr. Condon announced uh, through one of his through like the third or fourth letter now to the fandom disseminated via the Twilight Saga official Facebook page, 32 million friends and counting, um, that uh, he, as well as certain of the cast members, will, as well as Greg Yolen, will be returning north to, or will be flying north to Vancouver in two weeks mm-hmm. for... Additional photography on the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. So I thought, because interest, uh, obviously interest in the wake of this announcement is running incredibly high uh, in at, at least the idea that there's a little bit of filming that is yet to occur and that this will very likely be the last bit of filming 
ever to occur, certainly involving the characters of, of uh, Edward Cullen and Bella Swan, as portrayed by Rob Pattinson and Kristen it, wait, Stewart, who will continue aging. <laughs> I thought it was Crawlden. I've, I've been looking like an idiot this whole time. Edward Crawlden? And I thought it was like Edward one. Cullen. And sounding <laughs> like one. Thank you. Um, so I just thought... In that we very often talk about just movie business, movie business or movie production related stuff. It wouldn't be a terrible idea to talk about reshoots versus additional photography versus, versus perception attached to each and how it's sort of changed over time. And how perception, of course, is relative universally speaking and exactly what any one person perceives, quote unquote, is really, uh, you know, relative to any number of constantly shifting factors in uh, our, our planes of dimension, the uh, dimensional pla- interplanetary. Going on and I are each other. Um, I, I shouldn't have drank all that cough syrup before coming over. <laughs> you had a cough, though. What else were you going to do? <laughs> I thought I was developing a cough. <laughs> and now... <laughs> and now I see small people. Okay, let's. <laughs> All right, I'll lay it out there as the one dude not attached to to the fabulous Twilight Saga. Right. Not speaking specifically of that film. Right. Um, from a layman's perspective, I think the common not quite a layman because you are very interested it. in movies. But I think the common, uh, let's even say, film buff can uh, conception of reshoots, additional photography is that it's typically not a great thing. Am I wrong? It's hard to tell, like, is, do you think that's still the current perception, Yolan? That it's not a great thing, that it indicates a tro- so-called troubled picture? Well, in certain cases, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, there are plenty of movies where, and, and it is sort of one of the most amazing things, I think, about, about making a film, uh, certainly a big budget film, is that you can literally go the entire uh, scripting, development, pre-production process, produce the film, make the film, and start putting it together, and then and only then realize that there is a deep, deep flaw in it. And it's right. something that not only escaped you know, you as the director or the producer, but it in fact escaped every person who ever read that script. The screenwriter, the creative executives, the and, studio, uh, again, the aforementioned studio press. And sometimes it press. happens you know, within a scene where you'll just be you know, putting together a scene and go like, wait a minute, that doesn't scan. Like He wouldn't think that if da-da-da-da-da. And right. sometimes it's DNA deep and it's the entire movie. And in some cases, uh, depending on how much you know, money is has been spent and how much money a studio uh, is willing to continue to spend, that requires massive reshoots. Right. So there and is a are, massive reshoots. That and those happens. are technically reshoots where you are reshooting material that you have already shot mm-hmm. and now you're trying to fix... Big fixes. Fix material that when you shot it the first time and then looked at it, you realized was broken or damaged goods. And in all likelihood, so now when, you're you, when you hear about reshoots that last uh weeks at a time yeah that's what you're talking about because the average you know production schedule most films are shot within about two months right um you know so they usually talk about eight week production schedules right if you're talking about a much bigger film obviously it can it can go up more um and in in breaking dawn's case it was uh a hundred days of shooting for both movies movies. shooting simultaneously so that was actually a lot yeah. That was like a lot to get in 
in a relatively short period of time. It was right. not a leisurely production schedule by any means. Right. But uh, so if you're talking about shooting for eight weeks and then going back and shooting for two more weeks, uh, you know, in, in additional photography or reshoots, that's a big thing. Right. That's a whole quarter of your movie that you're redoing. What is? What are a few examples of Battleship movies that have gone <laughs> through extensive reshoots, and you believe were troubled pictures and may have remained troubled pictures even after the reshoots, if the if the uh, I- idea or ideas or some of the concepts are inherently flawed. What are some of the most famously reshot movies to whatever effect? I'm trying to think right now, and the way I'm trying to do that is by thinking of actors' continuity errors with Dude, their that's exactly where I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about it, too. I'm like, yeah. who had a mustache in that scene and didn't in that? Yeah, I know there's some of them, but I can't... Um... But that's also tricky because, you know, there are continuity errors that don't necessarily suggest reshoots. It's just sometimes... I happen to know, for you know, in, in Twilight, it's like to get Peter Facinelli's wig right... Mm-hmm. Uh, in Vancouver, uh, you know, and match it to Baton Rouge was a huge challenge. Right. So there are certain scenes when you're watching this movie where you walk, where he walks into the house and his wig looks one way and then he walks upstairs and that wasn't because it was reshot. It's just because that, that shit's hard to do. I think yeah. Scott Pilgrim had pretty extensive, extensive reshoots. reshoots. Scott Pilgrim versus the world directed by Edgar Wright. Yeah, I'm not sure. Starring about Michael Sarah. Because uh, I know Sarah's hair gets longer and shorter. And I listen to the commentary, and I'm pretty positive they went back to Toronto for at least a few weeks. Well, here's a movie. This isn't, again, this is kind of what I wanted to tear into with this episode is, is it, sometimes it's reshoots. Yeah. Sometimes it's truly additional photography. Cop Out, for instance, we did additional photography. I Directed went, by I went, Kevin Smith. I went back for it. We didn't, they were all new scenes. So that truly right. is additional photography. Right. As a, you're, right. you're not reshooting anything that we was ever exactly. once shot. They were brand right. new written scenes for this shoot period. But here's an interesting, here's an interesting um, third iteration of the concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daddy Warbucks, or who's the uh, who's the rich character in Monopoly? Mr. Moneybags. Mr. Moneybags. George Lucas himself, when he said about filming, directing. The producing and directing the uh, Star Wars prequel trilogy. His whole process was that uh, there wasn't even. I suppose you would call it principal photography if it was the first session where they were shooting a lot Which of material. Is just what that but means. then he would go away and stop shooting, and then come back and start shooting a lot again and then go away back into the editing room, and then come back and start shooting a lot again. So even when I just recently went to see Phantom Menace in 3D, you're struck by, well, how could you tell that there were lots of different production, actual production periods for that particular movie? And it's just like, well, just look at Ewan McGregor's face. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's clearly just been dragged out of a pub because he's got that beer or that carby sort of alcohol alcohol paunchy face and a horrible horrible short wig and then yet at other times in the movie which were presumably shot first he looks his face is leaned out and the hair is good it's presumably a haircut and um he looks you know he looks like a young obi-wan kenobi yeah and if you had infinite money like george lucas does 
you could you can you can make a film like you that. can keep going in and out of production interspersed but if, with if in you're and talking out of about retaining a crew having any sense of continuity yeah you know uh you're talking about huge equipment costs of course uh, you know, rentals, things like this, all, all of which, of course, George Lucas already owns. So yeah. he's, he's talking about jumping those costs. Yeah. He can just, you know, whenever he wants to shoot, it's like, yeah, yeah, roll the cameras out, get the fucking equipment out. You yeah. know, it's all. And the thing that Lucas, are. the thing that we think that Lucas is, look, and Lucas, in, in fairness, has been hugely pioneering in lots and lots of areas in terms of how movies are made and yeah. assembled. Skywalker Sound, he was the pioneer, I think, for the Avid. Uh, editing system with his own sort of digital online editing system mm-hmm. in the early 80s, I think. Um, so he's not only has he had the um, huge, obvious impact in the area of visual effects, but he's also had a huge, a massive er- uh, impact in areas of, and lots of technical areas in post production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. But what we perceive he's trying to get around with this new production process which may or may not by the way have carried through to the production of red tails mm-hmm. is well, basically it did take them like three fucking years to make that movie so you would assume so yeah right? so That's it right. must have been yeah. right he basically like hates writing specifically screenwriting to such a degree that he really truly does not want to sit in that little bungalow on his property that we all saw in the first behind the scenes featurette where he had all of his sharpened pencils and the <laughs> can and and his ruled pads he truly truly does not want to have to commit to creative decisions until he really has to and he will try through a process of trial and error and spend 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 to find the movie Without finding it in well, his head, and while, while we're while we're talking about this, I mean, episode three, I think, is a film that, from what I understand, had several uh, quote unquote reshot elements. Right. One of which was the, the Jedi Purge. Right. Uh, I, I've heard that. Which was, I believe, mostly directed by Steven Spielberg. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, if the, not bored of the by Steven scene, Spielberg. Uh, at the opera with Anakin and and Palpatine. Right. I know was written by Tom Stoppard and that they, they brought him in to, to flesh this out. And then right. the scene which you and I have discussed as being our single favorite scene from any of the prequels, which is that silent scene. That is also, I believe, conceived by Steven Spielberg. I, and I believe that that was actually just taken from... I don't think that was actually reshoot, now that I think of it. I, I think that was just taken from elements that they'd already shot and, right. and cut together rather brilliant, brilliant. In editorial. Yeah. Yeah. They found that moment and created it in editorial. Exactly. Which sometimes happens. This leads to another interesting question in my mind that has nothing specifically to do with reshoots, but just thinking about Lucas and his level of preparation. How many films, and if you could think of any specifically, do it, go to camera without a real script? Like, well. Where they're kind of (laughs) making it up as they go along. And I know what happens. I know what happens. I'm just curious. Here's an interesting question. Here's an interesting question. Because I doubt that Lucas. When did it start happening? Did George Lucas really sit down with fucking Final Draft and write like. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't believe that George Lucas has written a script. But did that happen? Did a studio, did a studio take a movie into production, into the phase of production? Did a studio take a movie out of pre-production into production? Without a without a finished yeah, script in the yeah. 1970s. Oh no! As, aside from Apocalypse Now, well, yes, which was a shit show, right? 
But aside from Apocalypse Now, back in the 70s, my perception, rightly or wrongly, is that there was a there was considerably more discipline at every level of movie production from the studio all the way down to the writers. Let's figure it out. Let's make our decisions well, now before the meter starts running. I think that that's also that was also sort of the byproduct of the, you know, Auteur uh, period. The auteur period, which is that. Do you want to explain th- that? Yeah, which is that in the seventies, uh, you saw directors. It's a French concept coming out who basically were given full creative control of their films in an unprecedented fashion. You had you had films being released by major studios like Taxi Driver, right. by people like Scorsese, Columbia and, Pictures, and exactly and and Coppola uh, and Spielberg, obviously, um, it, although in a different sort of realm, right? Um, so you know you you gave them free reign. Right. But in order to do that, I mean, the the risk that studios were willing to put into the trade of having something that bore the stamp of a director and that people went to because they wanted that thing, because they wanted to see what, what right. that director had uh, in their mind. That director or that auteur, that which is French for author, author which it, was you a... You wanted to go see Patty Chayefsky's. You wanted to see Network. You wanted to see what Patty Chayefsky had written. Who had both, who both wrote and directed that film. Uh, well, in, yeah, well, in, in some cases. I mean, Patty Chayefsky didn't write or didn't Or even if he network, didn't, even if he didn't write it, he directed it. The auteur, you have to, we all, we have to sort of educate yeah, yeah. here. The auteur theory always, yeah, always referred morons. to the director. <laughs> yeah, idiots. Right? Yes. It was a French theory of film criticism that was imported and made popular in the States here by Village Voice critic Andrew Saris, I think in the late 60s. I'm not sure, but that sounds right. But, uh, but, came to be applied to the bodies of work right. by directors such as Hitchcock, John Ford, Orson Welles, regardless of whether or not these men Tracing wrote theme and variation as well as each and every wrote as well as directed each and every picture that they directed. Take James Whale for an example. That's, yes, that's take a James Whale, as played by Ian McKellen and Bill Condon's Brilliant Gods and Monsters, which Bill Condon both adapted from the novel Christopher Bram and directed. Well, and you could certainly, certainly uh, apply that to the auteur theory. But James Will is a director that, you know, worked within the studio system uh, in in the 30s. That's right. And When the studio system was very, very rigid. He was, a, he was a director yeah. for hire. He was a director under contract. Yeah. And people didn't think of his films as being a body of James Whale's work. Personal works. Personal works. So, yeah. you know, you have him directing... Uh, you know, Carousel and Bride of Frankenstein. That's not true. And Showboat. Showboat. Shh, Jesus Christ. Right. Frankenstein, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein The Invisible, Invisible Man. Man with Claude Rains. I mean, you have these great films, but it wasn't like, oh, these are the James Whale films. You don't, you don't collect Until later. Them. Well, exactly. Until the, they begin the to be. the auteur theory. They begin perhaps. to be taken as a whole right. and looked at as the body of work of, right. of this man. Right. Um, so, yeah, so the auteur theory then in the 70s, you know, takes you into this area where filmmakers are getting free reign because studios understand that they are... Directors actually, specifically are getting free reign. Filmmakers. Filmmakers can, can apply to anybody. Um, they're, they're being given free reign, but the trade-off is that, you know, they're, in terms of the budgets, in terms of the productions, in terms of this, like, they're, they're kept, I think, on a leash. Right. I don't think they're just, you know... It, Apocalypse Now being the notable example. Right. Mar- uh, Marlon Brando. Francis Ford Coppola coming off of The Godfather, perhaps the, the 
biggest film of all time. Massively successful at the box office as well as critically, exactly. culturally. The at the biggest cent- cultural at the center phenomenon of, pop culture. of all time. And Huge the studio at, at the Oscars did allow year. him famously to go in and do Apocalypse Now without, you know, without those... Without a script. Yeah. Without and by those, the way, uh, who originally conceived of Apocalypse Now in terms of retelling a sort of version or an interpretation of Joseph Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness set in the Vietnam War with the Kurtz character from the from the Conrad now a sort of out of his mind army colonel who is who is committing these incredible atrocities somewhere up in the, in the heart of at the mouth of this river who originally who originally came up with the idea of doing that. Was that Milius? George Lucas. That was George Lucas. George Lucas. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I did not know that. Who then gives the idea, I believe, to Coppola. And Coppola runs with it. And run he did. Yeah, into run the Philippines. Run it into the ground. And by the way, for anyone listening, if you've drugs. never seen Apocalypse Now, you obviously have to see it, but then you should also immediately uh, watch the great documentary. Made by Mrs. Coppola. Uh, made by Mrs. Eleanor. Coppola. Eleanor Coppola, uh, Hearts of Darkness, um, about the making of that film, which is one of the greatest documentaries. On the of, making of on the making a movie. Of a film. Maybe uh, the best. Making a movie Maybe ever. Maybe the best ever. Yeah. Maybe even a little better than the China Od- a China Odyssey, the making of Empire of the Sun. <laughs> I've never As referred it. to in a previous podcast that you haven't yet found the time to listen to, Greg Yellen. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> You're n- I don't believe the sound of your voice was in that podcast. Uh, I gotta anyway. go. I gotta go. <laughs> I have a five fifteen three Stooges to get to. So, um, yeah, See, but but in terms of modern filmmaking, so when did when do you think? Studios first found a sort of comfort level where they would let a typically, typically a large budget event franchise movie start actual production without a finished agreed upon screenplay. Well, I've just been, go- I think the 80s. I've just been Googling stuff and it seems like a lot of fucking movies start, like Men in Black 3, they're saying a start lot of without studio a- movies now. It's yeah. very start without normal. A script. Um, start David, without David a Gordon script. Green claims that Your Highness never had a script at all. Wow. Apparently, I got, that's a fucking. I don't author. believe that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it sounds like it happens more often now. Yeah. Well, it's all of, I mean, I think it really started rush, in the 80s. They rush it into production. It started, in, well, it started in 1975. I mean, last action hero, in, friends. It started with Jaws. It started with Jaws the really age of the blockbuster it. and the, and, and it started with Steven Spielberg and the idea that. But do you really think Jaws went into production without a final script? No, no, no. I'm not script. saying that Jaws did that. I'm saying it that. It didn't. The, the, the idea they just had of, to improvise. of tentpole films. Yes. In the modern sense of it. Which is born with Jaws. Which is born with Jaws. In a 75. new kind of blockbuster that can actually finance your studio for a year and finance That's all right. your other films. Because Jaws historically, again, for the, for the less informed, was the first movie to gross a hundred million dollars in a single calendar year. That's right. So then you have studios Batman figuring the out to their gross dates, 200 and they're saying we've got to have next year's Jaws on right. X date. We've got to have Avengers so on May fourth. So-called tent poles, tent pole films. To they're hold, gonna, they're the going to hold up the up tent for the rest of your the the projects that are slate, underneath the tent. The movie slate. Right, right. Exactly. So once you have those, you know, the calendar, and I mean, uh, my a good example of this would be. Um, when I worked at Universal Pictures, and this is, I can say this now 
outside of my and my non-disclosure agreement because it is a matter of public record because Matt Damon actually recently spoke about it. Okay. Uh, the third Bourne film. Right. Oh, this is good. The, How juicy the Bourne, is this going to be for our podcast? The Bourne Ultimatum. Okay. Uh, went into production without a third act. Okay. They didn't have a third act. So how many pages did they have in that draft, that production draft? Uh, I mean, they, I think just they right up pull. until it's then it's like white pages. Well, I think that, I, I mean, if we're being honest, I think they had a, a third act written. Just no one liked it. It was just like, well, this is obviously not going to be shot. Right. It was written by Tony Gilroy, who wrote, uh, the previous film and the one before that, I believe. Right. Um, he was contracted to do uh, a single draft. He got paid a lot of money, right. and then he um, he he did it, and he didn't revise it, and he didn't have to revise it, and that was it. He was done. Right. And Matt Damon recently made these public comments about how he thought that Tony Gilroy had really uh, fucked over everyone in that process. Really? Yeah. Where did he make those comments? I, I could look him up. I mean, wow, that's he, pretty out there. Usually, people don't talk that level of trash in the in the. It's media. true. It's true. And he actually, Matt Damon, nice guy that he is, apologized for it because he didn't. He after sort of the, said it after yeah. he opened the door and let the zombies out of the barn. Well, I think he, but he was he was trying to discuss it in in terms of why there are so many movies that you see and you're like, why did it go to that place? Like, why did it? Yeah. Why did it do that? So, Born Ultimatum goes into production. With, uh, because they're trying to make this date on it. Because they're like, we have to get this out. Which is a relatively recent, probably within the last 10 years development in the movie business, where they, they announce that the Avengers is going to open on that all important May, May 3rd, day, May, yeah. May 2nd through 4th weekend date that opens now the summer movie. The ev- Star Wars weekend. No, the Star Wars weekend was later in May. Oh, sorry. But the new, the new May date that opens the summer event movie season. So they, the studio announces a year or two in advance. For instance, the Hunger Games, yeah, Catching Fire, Hunger Games Part Two, will be out on or around the Twilight Weekend, mid-November, twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. They've got the, they've landed on the date. They have the date. They've announced the date, which means no other studio will get near that date because they're all terrified of competing with that picture. And now backing out of that date. They need a director. They need to have that movie <laughs> finished and delivered in order to make that date. And right. so what compromises start to be made in order to hit that date? And one of the compromises is we have to start production no without what. a finished script. I think X-Men 3... Not as, by the yes, way, not X-Men in the case of Catching Fire. I think X-Men 3 went from pre-production to screen in like eight months or something. Yeah. Like something insane. Because they quick, needed, they a, they the needed a picture on that date. And by the way, then it gets more complicated And that's one of the most that rushed films. For that fiscal quarter, yeah. for that conglomerate, what is our picture for the second quarter, 2014? What is our picture? The shareholders are not going to want to hear that we don't have a picture yeah. for fourth quarter, 2015. We need to make this announcement. We need to get our date. We need to get, land on our weekend and scare everybody, all the other studios other off our off the, weekend. weekend. Yeah. So, so in Bourne's case, yes, they go, they make this movie. Um, this is a great episode. It's they're really thank you for having to say that. It Jesus, is. I'm Jesus just saying. Christ, Jack. Do it's you do that? Do you do that in sex too? This it's is great sex. This, this is, is really, really good great. sex. No, I never have occasion. Oh, okay. Um, the so in that film they 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 go into it hey, uh, they're making the movie they they're rewriting it constantly Matt Damon brings in George Nolfi his friend right. uh, writer who later directs the Adjustment Bureau okay um 
and Nolfi is basically on set rewriting every single day, and they're writing the right. scenes that they're going to shoot next week. Right. And that's how they do it. Right. And then, if you look at that movie, if you look at The Bourne Ultimatum, which I think is actually terribly overrated, I was shocked that people were like, oh, this is great. Right. Because there's literally a moment in that film when Matt Damon goes into the burning wreckage of some explosion, and he finds a briefcase that's been exploded, and there's a piece of paper in that briefcase that has the name of a company right. and in New York, and that's where he goes. So then you get your New York climax. And that is so outlandishly bad in terms yeah. of writing. But yeah. that's a, that's a reshoot. That's a, re, a big reshoot. Right. Because they did it and they're like, how the fuck do we get them to New York? Yeah. I don't know. We don't know. We don't have it. We don't know. Did Greengrass yeah. do the third one too? Yes. He directed so it was Greengrass. One. Paul Greengrass directed the entire Bourne trilogy. No, he directed the second and the third. Doug, Doug Lyman did the first. the first. That's right. And who's directed the new fourth installment starring With Jeremy, Jeremy Renner? Renner. Uh, Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy. Wow. I actually, Jeremy I saw, Renner, to be clear, is not playing the Matt no, Damon character. No, I saw okay. the trailer in theaters, and for like the first forty percent of it, you just think it's a generic action movie, right? And uh, at one point, someone goes like, "We thought we had a problem with Bourne," and people in my theater again, genuinely, <gasps> like it was the loudest gasp you've ever heard in your fucking life. Like, oh my god, this is the average action movie that they're handing me now with a Bourne label on it. But oh, no, were they, like, they liked like, it. Excited. Like they were excited. Yeah, like, they, they liked that, it. They Trailer's couldn't conceptualize in a million years that the Bourne. Franchise would have Does, continued. They were not. Yeah, they didn't know that there was a Matt sequel. Damon. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, I never really loved those. I like I was, the first one. I'll never. See I can't any of those believe again. that became a like a beloved fucking franchise. I think the second one is a great film. I think I, I like the action in. I, I like the action style. I guess. Yeah, it's great, and that's really it's only definable kind of trademark though, right? Is that kind of yeah random, very second, violent? But the second one, of, which is a really good movie. Second also, is good, yeah. blows away some conventions. You get uh, with Franca Patente. Franca dies in the first like five yeah, minutes. Yeah, killed right? in the first fifteen minutes. It's, it's shocking yeah, yeah. and it's great, and it's it like makes a an interesting. It dark gives movie. great motivation for him yeah, and shit it's like that. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the second one's the I think the load bearer, but yeah. I mean, Do you know if they've gone off the books? Like for this new one, did Ludlum write any oh, not no, no, no. with They're Bourne so in them? so different from the books. Okay, but I mean, like Jeremy Renner, does that character exist in the books at all, or no, they scrapped that's them? a completely okay. new, completely new fabrication. Um, but again, it's like that's that's an example of a tentpole film where you're willing to do whatever it takes to justify its existence, even though you know, let's face it, like we ran the 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 gamut of Bourne movies, like, and in in the defense of the third film. They tie it up nicely, you know, with the image of him in the water at the end of the, no, the yeah. third one, which is the same as where you open in the first one. It's it's like pretty it's pretty nice. You've done it. There's a little arc. And then in in this one, it's sort of like, you know, Universal is saying, What are our franchises? What can we possibly do that's gonna guarantee us a return that has, you know, name recognition? And frankly, in Universal's case, there's not much. You know, so what is you mean what in are Universal? In the overall inventory of brands that they own, of brands, yeah. uh, it's not Warner Brothers. Except they have Harry, all of, except Harry they're, Potter. They're and monsters, which they're always trying to fucking get into something and exactly. never, yeah, ever, just, ever will again. They're still trying Crazy. to do Frankenstein and the Wolf Creature from the Black Lagoon. They're trying and to yes, redo the Wolfman so, now. How about let's just stop for again. a second now that Gary Ross is not has announced that he will in fact not be directing Catching Fire. Who amongst us believes that he will return to Universal and make a very rich deal to ultimately direct uh, uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon reboot that he had been developing for years, given that his father or 
I think grandfather or uncle wrote the original creature from the yeah. Black Lagoon. With the flick like that, though, and I'm that would afford a big payday, though. Would Gary, That's a big with a giant, giant movie like that. Where and I obviously this isn't true, but I feel like if I fucking directed it, it would have made a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Does Gary Ross really get the points for the phenomenon? Like, did Christopher Columbus get all the credit? For Harry Potter one doing well, did you know what I mean? Can did re- Bill Condon get all the credit? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a good. I, don't, I mean, well, can we refer to him as Chris Columbus so that I don't get confused? Because <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to some sort of no. Like, when does it's he a, get credit for you know Thanksgiving? When it's a movie that almost uh, uh, can't uh, uh, fail, yeah. do, do the directors get extra points, as it were, in the industry for, yes. for facilitating and making that yes. happen? Yeah, yes, they do. It makes sense. Right. Yes, yeah. because there's a phalanx of of agents, managers, and attorneys who are all marching in goose. In uh, goose step or lockstep, either take your goose post. steps more Nazi saying <laughs> saying that he's to credit, yeah. and that it's not, and that's the reality. Not that to they diminish create. Suzanne Collins's novels, but well, in the hands of another director, we we will never know. We can't say for sure, of course, that uh, you you would have ended up with a cast in a picture that would have pulled the gross that this is pulling right this is a well-respected director they were able to draw a cast that you know might not have been there lent it this lent it that yep so it's the fact that he it's almost uh, the fact that it came off so well they have to credit him with you can't you can't believe me had it not they'd be blaming of course of course so yeah yeah yeah. of course yeah yeah. and and really if we want to talk about the quality of the hunger games uh which i do Really? Uh, yeah, go ahead and blame Gary Ross, because that thing made me nauseous. See, I haven't even seen it yet. And I read the books and loved them, and then I started watching the trailers. Like, release came and went a week, and then I was like, you know what, maybe I'll check it out. I have no fucking interest in seeing what that dude has to do with it. Well, right. what he does is he shakes his camera like it's a fucking piggy bank, and he's trying to get the last dime out of it. <laughs> and uh, you actually get... Car sick watching this. See, movie. that excites me because I thought at least he's moving the camera. I, in my mind, totally thought, and I don't want to offend anyone if they're a fan of this gentleman's, but it was going to be like a Ron Howard movie, which to me is literally like if you inserted directing robot, that was how they would direct a film. <laughs> there's no personal touch. There's no anything. It's the most technical, like, there's a movie. Like, you know what I mean? Every shot is I how have that made shot. you a movie. Yeah. There's no <laughs> Do style. Do you like it? Give no me an st- Oscar. No style, no technique. And I feel like I felt Gary Ross was a bit like that, but maybe yeah. I'm, I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, except Ron Howard's directed a, a couple of good movies. Yes, yeah, so I love Apollo 13. Yeah. Do you? Apollo 13's great. Do you love Apollo 13? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't, I don't love sure it. About I think that? I respect it. It was a well made movie. What's your favorite Ron Howard like movie? What's your mm. favorite Ron Howard directed film? Mm, that's a tough one. Take uh, a moment. Do you on. need to pull him up on IMDb yeah, and read the credits? I have, I have a quick answer, but I recently rewatched it and I didn't like it, which was Parenthood. Really? Yes. Guess what? Blash. That was going to be my answer. What um, didn't you like about it uh, upon your recent viewing? It gets viewing? real mopey in the last portion. Mopey or maudlin? M- both. Really? Um, Opie made a mopey. Opie made a mopey. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's the the, Night the CV. Um, Start from the first credits, directing credits. Grand Theft Auto, Night Shift, Splash, Cocoon, Gung Ho, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, Far and Away, The Paper, Apollo 13, Ransom, 
Ed TV. That's my pick. Uh, how, <laughs> how the Grinch Stole Christmas, A Beautiful Mind, The Missing, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon, Hate It, Angels and Demons, uh, The Dilemma, and then his new one called Rush. I can genuinely say I, I, I think I like two of his 18 fucking films. Which two? Uh, Cocoon. Apollo 13, and I guess Splash is cute. But other than that, fucking I don't need him. I'll do Backdraft. Yeah, I kind of like Backdraft. I really loved Backdraft as a kid. Yeah. I'm shocked. And The Paper's a good movie. See, I haven't Let seen me ask that. you guys this question. Um, how many books in that, in that franchise, however you refer to that franchise, and you should know because, again, you worked at Universal. Or maybe this the was Bourne, Columbia anyway. The Bourne stuff? No, the, da Vinci, the Dan Brown Da Vinci Three. stuff. How many books were there? There are three now. There were two when the films were in production, and the third has come out after the the first movie. The Lost Symbol, Uh, which is is not going to be made by Ron Howard. It is not going to be made by Ron Howard. It is in development. It will be made, but it will not be made by Ron Howard. Tom Hanks? Yes. Did Tom Hanks star in both those? Yes. Yes. Da Vinci and Angels and Demons, Demons, right? And have you seen either one of them? I saw Da Vinci because, of course, it co-stars Ian McKellen McKellen. as Lee (laughs) Teabing. Lee Teabag. Hey, he didn't name the character. (laughs) Um, But he did immortalize it. So anyway, so So, many tangents, so little time. Well, so, so... Back to reshoots because that's what we were, we were talking about. Reshoots versus additional reshoots photography versus very, troubled movies. A very, but they're they're tr- on troubled movies, but they're also a very common thing now. Uh, well, you do have of, to say reshoots or additional photography. What studio movie doesn't have any? I think to some degree, a lot of big studio movies. Have it's built in. Have them, yeah. You never even hear about it. The only reason you heard about the coming additional photography on Breaking Dawn Part 2 is you got a note from the director. Well, yeah. What else did you want? Did and you want a box ha- of donuts? And you're going to see people getting off an airplane. Going through Vancouver, Vancouver. Airport. And it's with, also with this lovely LA. waterfall. It's all the most uber-aware fan base of all time, it seems like. It's pretty aware. Like, they Twilight know when that dude has a aware. button missing. Like, yeah. They'll, they'll fucking know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know the questions I get on Twitter about the... Which rings Bella Swan is wearing on which fingers on which hands? I can't even. It likes makes my own Battlestar obsession seem uh, quaint, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we what can we say for the Twihard who's listened dutifully to this entire episode, perhaps their first episode of the Team Jack podcast, who's waiting for just some little tidbit of information? Shut your pie hole. Um, some little tip. Spoiler alert, they're tip vampires. Information for the coming additional photography. We have to be very, very careful about this. Yeah. But here's what I will say. Uh, the director, Bill Condon, has said to me several times. Close personal friend of ours, by the way. As recently as a week ago, that it is a particular point of pride for him in his... Uh, given his overall body of work, to have taken into production a 100-day shooting scheduled movie, a giant movie that would be released as two parts, and to have come out the other side of that and to not have a single day, to not have a single scene 
directed by him in the so-called main unit, right? Or is it first unit? Main unit. Reshot. And that includes what's to come. Yeah, that's true. Not one shot directed by the main unit over the course of 100 days on these two Breaking Dawn movies uh, has needed to be reshot or will needed to be reshot. Which, and he's very, very proud of that given just the logistical nightmare of what shooting two movies over the course of 100 days entails given that sometimes you might be shooting a scene from what will come to be, from what will be, you will be shooting a scene that will be featured in part two and then you'll break for lunch and maybe if you're on a split schedule, lunch will be at two in the morning and then you'll come back and you'll shoot two scenes from that will end up in part one and another one that will end up in part two. As you can imagine, the continuity issues are hellish. Yeah, and um, so it's a real point of pride for him that nothing that he directed uh, has been reshot or will be reshot, which then leads us to, I think, be able to say that most of the stuff that is going to be gotten is stuff that was uh, from the second unit. That's right, and and if there's any question about. And we can't what a, say what a first unit or second unit does. I mean, yeah, for you know, the layman, yeah, what's the difference? Generally, you know, the director's job on set is to focus on the actors, on the lead actors specifically. You know, in any given scene, they're there to make sure that you know each shot tells the story in the performances, and the second unit then traditionally picks up things that you don't have time to do, and often don't involve actors. Or involve stunts, or right. you know, involve and that. By the way, this is all buildings that you're going into. But and these are on movies that are big enough to actually afford a second unit, as right. opposed to a movie like Gods and Monsters or Kinsey, right? Smaller where films, almost there are no second, second units unit, yeah. because there's no money for a second unit in the budget, right? Right. So it, on a on a, a large scale film like Twilight, there just isn't enough time to send Bill Condon and his whole main unit crew out to get, you know, the exterior shot of the Cullen house at night when, you know, you have to be on a soundstage. That's basically filming. an establishing shot that contains no actors. Contains no actors. It's just, you know... You and know, it's you boarded, and everybody yeah. knows what that shot is going to look but like. When, so you're, there's... when you're putting together the film, you're figuring out what are the shots you can do with your second unit, and then what are the shots where Bill has to be there. And right. if Bill has to be there, and those are the shots, those are the scenes with with actors, with you know, where again performance is telling performance the story, matters. Uh, that's main unit. In and let's every single case. Can we just jump off? Can we just um, digress for a second? Sure. What are the rumors that you ever heard about how many units were operating at one time on the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Oof. and who and who was directing those units? <laughs> I don't know. Because again, let's just, let's, again, for the purposes of this podcast, let's just be very clear. On Breaking Dawn, for everything that was assigned to the second unit, and yes, the second unit does have a director. He's called the second unit director. Mm. Everything that was assigned to the second unit was drawn out, storyboarded, developed, and agreed to. So everybody knew exactly what those exactly what those shots were meant to look like right 
once they were executed. That's Cohen, this question for you as well. What was the, and we'll get Ian McKellen to tell us when he's a guest on some future episode of Team Jack. Ow. What was, anecdotally, what, what was the highest number of units, main unit, second unit, third unit, that you ever heard were operating at one time in New Zealand during the production the of the of Lord the of the Rings trilogy? Jesus. Um, many, many units. Even on the okay, on the most recent Hobbit one, just from watching the production diaries, they've got they're they're always shooting two main units basically. And who's directing the second unit? Jackson goes back and forth between the two and just lets other people set up shots and shit. Wow. Um, at Wellington, they, he's got like a car he drives from stage to stage to go from setup to setup. I wow. think they have like five fucking units or something, something Whoa. crazy like that. Like they're they're shooting across. They're they're always shooting in different locations on the island, so they have different base camps at every time. Wow! And he just travels usually. Circus wow. was directing a lot of the second unit. Sh- Actually, Andy Circus, who Andy Circus is, is Gollum via motion capture directing, in the original trilogy, and I also both parts of the Hobbit and uh, Captain Haddock and Tintin and, and Tom 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 Caesar and Planet of the Apes. I think he might even be second unit director officially. I think that's true. But I know I've seen. I him, know, yeah. for instance, Australian director Jeff Murphy, who directed Young Guns Two, which I do feel is underrated. <laughs> <laughs> and did Free Jack with I think Mick Jagger Love and Free Jack. Love Free Jack. Was one of the directors on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I also heard that Peter Jackson's wife, Fran, Fran Walsh, Walsh, as well as Philippa, their screenwriter, Philippa Boyens, also directed units during the production of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. I actually directed must get a little confusing for I those actors. I directed the fourteenth unit on, <laughs> on Return of the King. But on Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn, Dear Twihards, there were only two directors. There was Bill Condon, and then there was the second unit director, who shall remain nameless. Um, Although, if you really wanted to figure out who it was, you could, you know, probably look at IMDb.com. credits on IMDb. Real quick, <laughs> real quick to cut in. It always I never, uh, until I worked on my first movie, I never knew that second unit directors were sometimes filmmakers in their own right. Yeah. Uh, so the second director on Cop Out was David R. Ellis, who did like um the Final Destination. Final Destination. Yeah, totally. And I was a wow. big fan of his yeah. shit. So it was yeah. super fuck. We had like two directors. Was he cool? Super, super, really, really cool guy. Oh, that's cool. Showed me like. And how book. much how much uh, leeway did he have in terms of how the stuff that had all been you know conceived, developed, and agreed to had been. A- Executed. I mean, I think Kevin talked about it too, but he was the action guy, you know, so he pretty much. David Ellis. Yeah, he knew how to so shoot. So he was the a bit more chases. experienced with the beats of action directing than Kevin. I mean, just based through through his film work. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Kevin had never chased, directed a car chase or an explosion or anything like well, that. Well, and uh, it's worth noting, tying into The Hunger Games, that uh, there was at least one key sequence in The Hunger Games, second unit directed by Steven Soderbergh. See, that's awesome. Really? Yep. Yeah. Which one? I don't know. Interesting. I could probably look it up. Hold on. I'll find that out. It's worth noting that neither David David Ellis or Steven Soderbergh directed any sequences in either part of Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn. (laughs) That is true. Nor did Steven Spielberg. Do you feel like there's this... I don't want to say underground because that makes it sound weird, but there's a common occurrence of uh, director buddies coming in to, to bust out a scene that we would never know about? Yes. Like I can tell you it did not happen on... Quentin and Sin It has never City. happened on a Bill Condon movie, but, well, it's never happened on a Bill Condon movie in the last 15 years. Okay. But, yeah, I'm, I think that goes, that goes around... Let's just say there's a thing at the Director's Guild 
which is the director's union, that if you're a feature director or a TV director or a second unit director, you belong to the Directors Guild, right? DGA for short, Directors Guild of America. They are the most powerful guild slash union in the industry, and they have a night once or twice a year called Feature Directors Night, where feature directors go hang out at Guild Headquarters, which is right on Sunset, right next to the Griddle Cafe, where we get our pancakes. And it's invitation only, so not all members are invited. Um, guests are not welcome, nor are any cameras or recording devices. And these feature directors just, just go have dinner and have sex and just orgy. hang out and gossip at the clubhouse. That's cool. And at that time, at that point in time, who knows whether George Lucas is there recruiting people to help him develop and beat out sequences for another Star Wars Whatever episode, fucking movie. He's who doing knows? Next. You know, I wasn't able to pull up what sequence. Oh, okay. Sorry. Right. sorry. Sorry. Right. I'm sorry. So. Um, bringing it back to Twilight, so basically, the coming additional photography is stuff that was all um, conceived, developed, and was to have been executed by the second unit during the period of principal photography. Uh, for various reasons, it was not executed by the second unit. And Although so the second unit was subsequently executed. Yes. By werewolves. <laughs> So now, world. because it was not executed by the second unit, up up you all go, including Yolan. Yay! To, to get what uh, should have been gotten during the period that is referred to as principal photography. Yeah, and it's very... It's, it's just very, that simple. It is very minimal stuff. It How is, many days? Can I say? I don't know. It's very few. It's, it's four, less than a four week. Days. Okay, and... Um, we already know that Rob and Kristen will be there. Mm-hmm. I just tw- I tweeted yesterday that yes, there will be wigs involved, but mm-hmm. I did blur the line by pointing out that Michael Sheen will also doubtless be spotted moving through the Vancouver airport to reprise for one last time his part of Aro, uh, the leader of the Vulturi. So good, by the way. He's so, so fucking good. Fucking good. So fucking good. And y'all have something to look forward to in this movie because he just he just tears it. it up. He owns it. It's so it's so great. Um and we're totally like good friends and so when he comes I'll be like, "Oh, hey Mike." And then I'll be like, "What's up, Greg?" And then you know, I mean, we'll probably just hang out just the whole time, just probably just hang out drinking our bag. Just, you know, and just, eating metabolic life. Yeah, for we're us. just like we're good friends and you know, I don't really like talking about it. Like a lot because, you know, obviously he's a celebrity and everything. But, you know, <laughs> suffice it to say that he's one of my closest friends and, uh, and that I don't, I'm not a name dropper or anything, but Michael Sheen and I are really great friends. And, and uh, as Bill, as Bill, uh, mentioned in his letter to the fans, <laughs> Rob and Kristen will be donning the gold contacts one last time. That is true. Is Kristen donning gold or is she donning red? She's donning both. Right. And uh, Michael Sheen will be donning red. red. Because he eats humans, and that's he drinks how you human. Tell. Oh, that's blood. how you know. It's like a code. Red thing. eyes yeah. equals you eat humans. If you're on a, a vegetarian slash you you know, drink rabbit humans. diet, you drink humans. What does gold yeah. eyes equal? That means you animals. You eat your your little animals. The occasional animal gorilla. friend. Oh, animal friend. So they can like train themselves to not eat humans, but to eat. Ugh, Cohen. Whenever I'm you're joking. ready to get. Come I'm up joking. to speed on the Twilight Saga, I Cohen. I obviously know again. I'm so 
angry with you right Team now. Team Peter the Nomad <laughs> Gang, right? <laughs> I'm, I could literally, I could literally eat your fucking face. Red <laughs> eyes. Angry. See, I know already. <laughs> if you were like, I could literally eat your dog's face, you'd be gold. So right I now. keep. This there are only two eye colors in Stephanie Meyer's Twilight Vampire mythology: red or gold. Correct? Or is there a third? Humans have eyes. Right? I believe one is yes, actually. But they're not oh, vampires, okay. Cohen. Or werewolves. It's not. I don't think it's actually referred to as gold. I believe it's referred to as amber. Oh really? And, uh, and then yes, red. Well, why is the website his golden eyes, not his amber eyes? Oh, uh, that was probably. We'd have to ask real. Amber, who is the webmaster of his golden eyes. Just kidding. <laughs> and you'd have to watch I think Golden Kimmy Eye. Is actually starring the... Pierce Brosnan. Yes, exactly. Which starts with an amazing scene. It's him by the pool. And the, he's, he's with a gal friend of his, and, and a gentleman walks up, and he looks at her, and he goes, men talk, sweetie, and he pats her on the ass, and she has to walk away. Uh, no, that's Goldfinger. Oh, that is Goldfinger. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to think it happens in gold, every... Goldfinger, yeah, and in that scene, he's wearing the all-time greatest James Bond outfit, which is a terry cloth yes, onesie yes. jumper in baby blue, <laughs> and it is like the kind of thing yes. that if I ever found something like that, I would be like, I will pay any price for this. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, you know, in every movie they do the, the cocktail, they do the O James. I just like to think they have that exact moment in every James. In Bond every James, film, yeah, where he tells talk. a woman that it's man talk. Yeah, well, that's and that is uh, arguably the best Bond movie ever. Goldfinger. Someone's got to own that terry cloth jumper. Who can we find? Michael Sheen. Stay the tuned. The Broccoli's. Jack, we got to get that jumper. <laughs> we got to get that jumper. <laughs> I want it. Put it on me. Get out of the pool. Don't need to towel off. Just put on the jumper. <laughs> Seriously, how, how efficient. You mean put on the Hayden Christensen? Put on the jumper starring Hayden Christensen and Jamie Bell. Again, cough syrup. <laughs> um how how far past an hour are we? Four minutes. Four minutes. All right. Episode twenty seven reshoots. The big reveal. They're not reshoots at all, folks. They truly are pick additional ups. photography. Yes, also known as pickups, which maybe we'll pick title ups. episode twenty eight pickups. It they're sad. There's not much to them. There's no dialogue involved. They're just little pickups. I mean, honestly, it's just kind of an excuse for me to hang out with one of my best friends, Michael Sheen, and just kind of catch up with Michael and just, you know, I mean, obviously we were very close. Uh, I don't right. really like to talk about it, certainly not in any public forum, but right. but he's a good, good friend and, and we always just have a blast together. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of all we're doing. We will, Yolan and I, and hopefully Cohen, as long as he's still with us and hasn't expired of lung cancer. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really hope you don't die, Matt, ever. I, get, you guys um, are the best. We'll revisit the subject at a future date after the theatrical release of Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2, and we will actually tell you... Everything. ...which shots were achieved during the merry month of April... Because they were not achieved during the period of principal photography. Mm-hmm. Why is it? Why are they not reshots? They were never fucking shot in the first place. What? But they should have been, yo. They should have been. Mine's Stop blown. looking at me, man. And on right. that note, I did my. Part. It's your fault. It's my fault. Um. Yeah, I'm Greg Yolen at Greg Y O L E N on Twitter. 
<laughs> I'm Jack Morrissey. Team underscore Jack FTW. No, FTW, just team underscore Jack, where you'll run into our 30 lovely ladies. Also, Jack underscore M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y. R is in Roger, S is in Sam, and it's Matt Cohen at... Nicki Minaj. <laughs> Camel Toad. Oh, yeah! <laughs> and you also have a website, I think, Camel Toad Productions. Thank you, sir. Yeah, cameltoadproductions.com. I've never been there. Check it out. Nothing really there, but I got to get working on it. Hmm. We, st- we we have a, f- a weird relationship, me and the website. Mm-hmm. Um, hang on just one second. Do we have anything else to add? Is there anything we're look? When do you leave? Week after next, not this week. I can't divulge the actual date. Oh, that's right. But is it this week or next week? Um, will you be wearing a wig, and what color are your eyes going to be, sir? My eyes will still be chestnut brown. Which means he only eats... Uh, Chestnuts. Chestnuts. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and occasionally the squirrel who itself has eaten. Yeah, I mean, if it's attached to it, you're not chestnuts. Picky. If, uh, it, if it has the chestnut in its hand. Um, yeah. Going that's up, it. Going up. Special thanks to all the Team Jack ladies for all the Twitter action that you're having to handle these days. And also Liz Lemon Bennett, who walked Ow. me through uh, yesterday, Saturday, a great many things. I guess that's it for episode 27. Of Team Jack. Um, oh, also look for us on Tumblr. I think it's Team Tumblr, Team Jack, or something. I'm a horrible person. And TeamJack.com. That's it. Out. Out. <laughs>